It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hello and welcome. I'm Frank Lavallo, and you're listening to Novel Conversations. Today I'm going to have a conversation about the novel To Have and To Have Not by Ernest Hemingway. And I'm joined in my conversation by our Novel Conversations readers, Ildi and Scott Rich. Ildi, Scott, hello. Good to see you again, Frank. Hi, Frank. Ildi, Scott, before we get started, let me read a brief introduction that I wrote for our novel today. Set in and about Key West, Florida and Havana, Cuba, amid the grinding poverty of the locals and the extravagant wealth of northern yachtsmen, To Have and To Have Not is the story of Harry Morgan, a basically honest man forced by his poverty to cheat, lie, run contraband, and even kill. How Harry Morgan tries to solve his financial problems make up the bulk of our story, To Have and To Have Not. Ildi, let me ask you, is this the first time you read To Have and To Have Not? It is. I had only ever heard of the movie before this. Well, on your first reading, what did you think about the book? Depressing, like all Hemingway. (laughs) Well, some of the things that happen to our main character are depressing, but did you find anything in the book to enjoy? Yeah, I thought the commentary about human nature and what poverty will do to you, very fascinating and interesting. This really was a study of poverty under the Depression, wasn't it? Exactly. And it's scary to think about what means people will go to and how they justify those means. In order to survive that poverty. Right. Scott, how about you? Is this the first time you read To Have and To Have Not? Yes, it was the first to read through this novel. What did you think about it? It can be a pretty rough novel to read, especially some of these opening scenes. But as always with Hemingway, I find it a very fascinating window into specific eras of history. And this novel dealing specifically with the Depression and how that affects Key West and Florida, as well as the beginning developments of the Cuban Revolution. Scott, I totally agree with you about how Hemingway can open up a window on particular events and times in history. But I think in this novel, he also opens up a window into how some of our characters think and how these times are affecting them personally. And it's those characterizations that I particularly enjoyed. I agree to a point. Enjoy may be a strong word at a few moments, but certainly a worthwhile novel to read. And I'll agree with you that maybe enjoy wasn't quite the right word. Well, Ildi, Scott, our novel starts with part one, titled Harry Morgan, Spring. And it really begins in the Pearl of San Francisco Cafe in Havana with an unidentified narrator telling us what's going on at that moment. That's right. We don't learn the narrator's name, Harry Morgan, for the first 30 pages or so. And he's sitting down at a table with three Cubans who are at once pleading with him and getting angry with him. Ildi, what do the Cubans want from Harry Morgan? They want Harry to smuggle them into America, to Key West in particular, for $1,000 a piece, which is a lot of money back then. That's right. In the late 20s, $3,000 could have kept a family for years. Exactly. But he doesn't want to do this. He doesn't want to risk going to jail or losing his boat because he makes his living with his boat. It almost sounds as if he'd risk jail if he was sure he wouldn't lose his boat. Yeah, and he's actually rather fond of the guys. He says, I wish I could do it for you just as a favor, but I just can't. But the Cubans that he's turning down almost take it personally that he won't help them. They're very desperate. They get very angry. And you soon find out that their lives are in imminent danger. Well, how do we find that out on practically the second page? In anger, they leave the bar. Harry hears a car pull up, tires screeching, and 
The three Cubans are assassinated right there in the streets with the bullets going through the windows of the cafe. But one of the Cubans at least takes out one of the assassins. And Scott, what's Harry doing while all this shooting's going on? Well, he hides down behind the table and grabs a drink and... Oh, there's a smart move. Heads to work. What do you mean, heads to work? He sneaks out the back door. And goes to the marina where he will wait for the fisherman who has chartered him and his boat for the day. That's going to be a Mr. Johnson? That's right. He's been taking Mr. Johnson out now for about three weeks between Key West and Havana, Cuba, every day fishing. Mr. Johnson wants to land a really large fish, probably a marlin. You're right, probably a marlin, but to Mr. Johnson, he doesn't care what it is. He just wants it to be big. He just wants a big fish and a good fight. But Harry's a little concerned about Mr. Johnson. The only money he's seen from Mr. Johnson every day is a little bit for gas and a little bit for beer. But he hasn't paid off this three-week charter yet. No, usually he makes any of his charters pay after each week, and that's the longest he'll let them go. But since he fronted up some money to begin with... Some money. Some money. Harry thinks that he's good for the rest of it. And Scott, who else is on this charter with Harry? We have Eddie, the rummy. A rummy? What's a rummy? A rummy is a heavy drinker. A drunk? Yes, a drunk. And since we're in the tropics, he's drinking rum. Precisely. Probably Bacardi. Since it is Cuba. Exactly. And along with Eddie, there is an unnamed young black kid who puts the bait on all the hooks. All right. So as I said, they go out on the charter with Mr. Johnson, and he's had a tough three weeks. Hasn't caught a single big fish. How's today's fishing go? It seems that Mr. Johnson is a very inept fisherman. He seems to make many blunders, such as don't keep your fishing pole on your lap, (laughs) with the drag tied down. Otherwise, if a fish catches, he's going to pull you into the water. Every day, has to remind him. Yeah, but Scott, today not only does he not catch a fish, he actually loses all the tackle. The rod goes overboard. That's right. He very intentionally does exactly what Harry Morgan tells him not to do. He puts the drag on too tight while they're waiting for a bite. A fish hits it, grabs the whole rod, reel, everything, and takes it overboard. Well, that's got to be the end of the charter for today. Harry was thinking to himself that this Johnson had fished 15 days. Finally, he hooks into a fish a fisherman would give a year to tie into. He loses him. He loses his heavy tackle. He makes a fool of himself. And then he sits there perfectly content drinking with the rummy. (laughs) Well, yeah, Harry's furious with him because the rod and reel and the line together are worth well over $300. And it would cost even more to replace today. That's right, but Harry feels he's being very fair, only charging him for the used price. Not to mention the three weeks of charter that Johnson owes him. And even the rummy agrees that he's being more fair to him than most people would be to their own mothers. And Harry Morgan really needs that money because he says that when he went on board that morning, he only had 40 cents left to his name. And we also find out he has a wife and three daughters at home. Well, Scott, we've barely met Harry Morgan and we don't know Johnson at all, but I have a feeling Harry's not getting this money. No, we find out that next morning as he's waiting and waiting and waiting, he flew home on the first plane. And Scott, we find that out from another character, Frankie. Yeah, Frankie, who's a local and old friend of Harry's, and he doesn't have a big role in the story, but leads us to our next character, Mr. Singh. At this point, Harry doesn't have many options. At least that's what he thinks. He's in Havana with no money. Right. 
And now he's desperate. And so in essence, he's going to compromise his morals and say, "Okay, maybe I will take some refugees over to America. That's right. The novel opened with him refusing to carry a few Cubans from Havana over to Key West. Now he's thinking, I may have to go that route. He really regrets not taking those three who offered him fantastic compensation. What's this new deal he's cooking up with Frankie? Well, Frankie knows of a man, a Chinese man, who is smuggling a lot of Chinamen to America. He's been doing this for about two years now. And Mr. Singh is in the need of a new man to take people across because his old man was killed. But he doesn't want to just smuggle three or four men over. He's got 12 that need to make this trip. Yeah, a dozen. And Harry's not being offered $1,000 a man for this trip. Nope, no. $100 a head. But he's got to take this deal. Yep. How does this deal work out? It's going to work out okay monetarily for Harry. Shockingly to me how it works out. Not so well for Mr. Singh or for the 12 Chinese. Well, wait a minute now. Scott, you're saying it doesn't work out very well. Ilda, you're shocked. We better get into this story. I was shocked a little bit because I basically thought, okay, he's got a good thing going here. Maybe he can continue working with Mr. Singh. I was weary about this deal from the very beginning because Mr. Singh essentially said, once they're on the boat, I've paid you your money. You can drop them off anywhere you'd like, which doesn't imply you have to honor their contract with me. Well, I guess Mr. Singh doesn't really care if they actually make it to America. He gets his money. Harry gets his money. Who cares what happens to him? As long as they're off Cuban out of his hair. In fact, when Harry says to Mr. Singh, well, what if they come back angry with you? Mr. Singh says, well, I'll just blame you and sell them another passage. Yeah. A con artist. He is a crook, plain and simple. I still was not prepared for what occurred on the boat. Well, Ildi, don't leave me in suspense. Tell me what happens. Well, as soon as all of the Chinese men are on the boat and locked below decks. Mr. Singh is handing Harry the money. As soon as the money is in Harry's hand, he grabs Mr. Singh. Eddie guns the boat. And he drags Mr. Singh aboard. But why would he want Mr. Singh with him? To eliminate any witnesses. He doesn't trust Mr. Singh. He thinks that Mr. Singh is planning to double cross him. Sure, it wouldn't be very hard for Mr. Singh to, as we would say today, drop a dime on him, call the authorities, give him the number of his boat, and get Harry caught too. Like Scott said earlier, Mr. Singh had no qualms about blaming Harry. And Harry has no qualms for what he's about to do. Very Cold and calculating, he snaps Mr. Singh's neck. And throws him overboard. Yep. With some scrap iron tied to his leg. Well, Scott, he's got all the money. He got rid of Mr. Singh, but he still has 12 Chinese men down in his hold. That's right. Harry, in fact, tells Eddie the reason he killed Mr. Singh is because he didn't want to kill the 12 other Chinese. And what he does is just pulls up to a beach a few hundred yards away, marches them all off the back of the boat. And head back to the mainland. They're a little disgruntled. Cursing him all the way. Yeah. And he knows they're not going to do anything because they're not going to turn him in. They were just as guilty. Basically, no matter how much of a have-not you are, you can always find someone who has less. There's always going to be someone like that. Especially in Cuba. Right. But Scott, even with the 12 Chinamen off the boat, Harry thinks he's got one more loose end he needs to tie up. That's right. Eddie is still on board and witnessed everything. But I thought Eddie was a friend of his. Yeah, but Harry just killed a man. He doesn't trust a rummy with facts like these. Even though he doesn't know it, he had a very close brush with death. But fortune is smiling upon Eddie. Why is that? Because before Eddie got on board, he had gone to the custom house and added himself to the crew list. He had not intended to bring Eddie at all. He was just going to do this alone. But Eddie snuck back on board 
when Harry was busy with something else. And when Harry sees Eddie's name on the crew list, he can't very well show up in Key West without his crew. And Scott, this trip actually turns out to be a pretty good one for Harry. That's right. He's able to make a fair sum of money going into the summer, and he's home with his wife and kids. And that's pretty much where part one ends. That almost sounds peaceful and happy when you forget what happened just a few hours before. Well, Scott, all's well that ends well for the moment. But now we're about to start part two, Harry Morgan's fall. After the Depression has begun. And just like part one, spring, part two starts right in the middle of the action. Right. We start off with Harry and a black man named Wesley on a boat hidden in the mangroves in Key West, and they're both badly injured. Well, Scott, badly injured, they're both shot. Yes, Harry is shot in the arm, and even worse than Wesley, who's shot in the leg. And that's not the least of their troubles. This boat is full of liquor. That's right, they've been smuggling booze from Cuba. But wait a minute, when we left Harry in the spring, he had just made a nice big steak and was looking forward to a great summer. I know it's the autumn now, but could things have gotten that bad? They could indeed. The Depression has hit, and there are no longer any customers ready to pay $35 a day for a fishing charter. Well, you would think being stranded on a boat shot with a boat full of bootleg liquor would be enough trouble, but it's about to get even worse for Harry and Wesley. Uh, Harry's always thinking, and he thinks, if a boat comes by and they catch us with all this liquor, we're going to be sent to jail. I'm going to lose my boat. So he decides they need to dump all the liquor out. But Scott, let me guess, a boat does come by. Yes, there is one group of people who did charter a boat government officials from Washington, D.C. And I guess the sight of two men shot dumping liquor over the side of a boat would arouse suspicion in government guys. Nosy ones. And these seem to be nosy ones. But Harry has an ally in the other boat's captain. Captain Willie. They don't really seem to be particular friends, but they know each other and have a certain amount of mutual respect. And how does Captain Willie help out Harry? Well, the two government officials are acting rather arrogant and patting each other on the back. One says to the other, you're really capturing him single-handed, said the secretary admiringly. And this starts to rub Willie the wrong way, who thinks they should mind their own business. And he, as they get closer to Harry's boat, yells out to Harry, Dump your load and get into town. I got a guy here on board, some kind of a stool from Washington. More important than the president, he says. He wants to pinch you. He thinks you're a bootlegger. He's got the numbers of the boat. I ain't never seen you, so I don't know who you are. I couldn't identify you. <laughs> and it gets a little bit more hilarious here at this scene as the government officials are demanding that Willie take them to that boat so they can single-handedly capture these bootleggers. Captain Willie says, no, sir, you called me a half-wit, but I'll see you get a full day's charter. That was a funny scene, even in the midst of all this tragedy and violence. Yeah, you find yourself laughing with two men bleeding to death on board a boat as they're trying to dump liquor. But tell me, how does the story end? Well, we don't find out exactly how it all turns out until part three. All right, well then, Ildi Scott, let's move on to part three winter. Yes, Harry with a few other men are having drinks at a local bar called Freddy's Place. We learn that Harry is missing most of one arm. So he did lose that arm. And the boat has been confiscated by the customs officials. So they got the boat. But they didn't get Harry. And what about the black man, Wesley? We never find out what happens to him. I found myself wondering about it even at the very end. I presumed he's dead. We never find out. Yeah, but now Harry's got no boat. No arm, but still has big needs. That's right. The family defeat. Well, what scheme does Harry come up with now? Well, it's not Harry's scheme. A local Key West lawyer known in town as B-Lips presents the opportunity to smuggle Cubans back to Cuba. Why would you need to smuggle Cubans into Cuba? They are trying to fund the revolution. 
guerrilla terrorists. And we're still in pre-revolution Cuba. That's right. But Ildi, how's Harry going to smuggle Cubans back to Cuba without a boat? Well, there's always the opportunity to steal your own boat. But Ildi, before Harry can steal his boat back from the Coast Guard, we're given a scene with his wife, Marie, that really shows me that the have-nots have something. They seem to have love, at least Harry does. His wife, Marie, and he are talking, and in a very sweet way, she's expressing some of her insecurities. You know, I'm old, I'm ugly, etc., etc. And he reassures her, you're beautiful to me, you're as good as any woman can be. And we get a description of his wife. She is a big woman, long-legged, big-handed, big-hipped, but still handsome. The whole scene is very tender, and it gives you a completely different side of Harry, who we've come to know as a cold-blooded killer, out of necessity, but still. That's right. And in fact, as the scene ends, Marie goes out with Harry to help him fill up cans of gasoline so when he steals his boat back from the Coast Guard, he can fill it up. She seems to know exactly what he's about and what he's into and wants to help him in any way she can. She also trusts him to get done what needs to be done. And I'd like to add one slightly comic scene as he's getting ready to load up the boat with his wife's help. He straps a hook to the missing arm. So now he's a real pirate going out into the Caribbean. And now he's got to go and pirate back his own boat. That's right. But he can't do it alone. So we're introduced to a new character. Albert. Albert is known in Key West terms as a conch. Which is essentially a local. Yes, it's a type of seashell that washes ashore in the area. Albert seems to be a very honest, hardworking guy. Getting nowhere. Who seems to have hit upon really hard times since the Depression hit. He's been working for the government, taking apart railroad ties, and moving them from here to there. But now even that work's drying up. Exactly. They're cutting his days down to three days a week, and he's not going to have enough to feed his wife and daughters. Barely had enough as it was. So clearly, Albert's desperate enough that when Harry asks him to come along on this crazy plan, Albert readily agrees. In all fairness, Albert just thinks that he's hired another charter to go fishing. Well, let's also be clear. Right now, Harry just thinks he's smuggling a few revolutionaries back into Cuba. He knows it's wrong, but he doesn't really think there's anything sinister to it. He knows there's danger, but he doesn't realize that the danger is going to get even more heightened. But Scott, once Harry gives this plant some thought, he realizes the Cubans are up to a lot more than just trying to get back to Cuba. That's right. He puts it together that they want to leave in an immediate time in the afternoon. They're, in fact, going to rob the bank and then run straight to the boat and depart immediately. So knowing that, he makes a counter plan, which includes provisions and a Thompson submachine gun. But first he has to get his boat away from the Coast Guard. How does that work out? It works out very well initially, but he doesn't hide it very well. They find it and reconfiscate his boat. Now what is he going to do? Borrow a boat. Is he going to let the owner know that he's borrowing this boat? Of course. He charters the boat from a local bar owner. And Freddie knows it's not completely legitimate, but it's just one of those Key West things that everyone looks the other way for, smuggling Cubans back and forth. Plus, they fronted the money for the value of the boat. Right. That's right. The lawyer and the Cubans have come up with enough money to make Freddie happy in case something does happen to his boat while Harry's got it out. Right. That's right. Well, let's see how this scheme's going to work out. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, let's start with the bank robbery. First, the Cubans have to go in with their lawyer. And they get the money, but the lawyer doesn't make it out of the bank. And in hindsight, Harry's not too surprised about that. No. 
I think Harry always knew that B-Lips was going to get it in the end. In fact, that's probably why he hid some guns on board. He's not so sure he'll make it out of this alive. He doesn't trust anybody. So what happens once the bank is robbed and the Cuban revolutionaries kill their lawyer? They take a taxi to the boatyard and they run down to the boat where Harry is waiting. They jump on board immediately shooting Albert, who's cutting bait at the back of the boat. Now, why would they kill Albert? Fewer people to deal with once they're underway. They see him as unnecessary. And as soon as they see the lights of Havana, they're going to kill Harry, too. And even though Harry knows this, at this point, he has no choice but to go on with the Cubans' plan until he can make his move. Right. Correct. And that's a hell of a move. He gets probably the fiercest looking of the Cubans to help him throw Albert's body overboard. And in doing so... The Cuban has to set down his submachine gun. So Harry, as they're taking Albert's body and dumping it overboard, kicks the machine gun overboard as well and tries to make it look like an accident. That's right. The line is, it splashed at the same time Albert did. It was very sad. But at least Harry got rid of one of the guns on the boat. And regardless of how angry this makes the Cubans, right now they need Harry. Though tempted, they do not kill him yet. And Harry's going to use that fact to his advantage. And how does he do that? A couple times he makes routine maintenance inspections of the engines. And one last inspection of the engine, which is just a cover really, he grabs his own hidden Thompson submachine gun and and begins to fire at each of the Cuban revolutionaries. That's right. And as he's grabbing the gun, he's thinking 21 to a clip is four bursts of five. I've got to be light fingered. All right, come on, quit stalling, you gutless wonder. And basically, he comes up to gangway steps, firing as he goes. Right, and it seems like he gets all of them. Well, not quite all of them. Two shots ring out from one of the first people he thought he had shot and killed. One hits the gas tank, and one hits him. Right in the stomach. Essentially, he's gut shot, but the Cubans are dead. They are now. He makes sure of that. And because of the leaking gas, before he passes out himself, he turns off the engines and decides just to let the boat drift. And as he's laying still, his thoughts go out to his wife, because he's expecting to die in the near future, and says to himself, I wish I could let the old woman know what happened. I wonder what she'll do. I guess I should have got a job in a filling station or something. I should have quit trying to go in boats. There's no honest money going in boats anymore. A lot of regret. But then again, he also feels that he had no choice. I think that's the inescapable conclusion we've come to by this point in the novel. Everything he does, he does because he has no other choice. He feels he has no other choice. Right. Right. Meanwhile, back in Key West, they're still dealing with the aftermath from the bank robbery. There's a lawyer dead, a boat, and Harry and Albert are missing. And word gets to Marie about what happened. She's called to the sheriff's office. And it's worse than she had feared. Well, what was her fear and what's worse? Well, she knew that he was going to be smuggling people over, but didn't realize that they were going to be bank robbers and probably trying to kill her husband. But let's be clear, as far as the townspeople know, Harry was an unwilling accomplice could all be construed as if he was a hero. If he survives and can tell the tale. That's true. And it's at this point, while Hemingway is telling us about Harry's wife, Marie, that he uses Marie's walking down the street to tell us about another character, Richard Gordon. He's a writer who's been in town for the last few days. Richard Gordon sees Marie walking down the street and her eyes are red from crying. And as a writer, searching for material, he quickly jumps to some assumptions about Marie and creates a little character sketch in his mind. Right. He makes a story up about her and what he assumes about her life because of the way she looks. And he gets it completely wrong. Absolutely. 
Richard Gordon was thinking that in today's chapter, he was going to use this big woman with the tear-reddened eyes he had just seen on the way home. Her husband, when he came home at night, hated her, hated the way she had coarsened and grown heavy, was repelled by her bleached hair, her lack of sympathy with his work as an organizer. And he would compare her to the young, full-lipped little Jewess that had spoken at the meeting that evening. He had seen in a flash of perception the whole inner life of that type of woman. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Or so he thought. Right. Yeah, Richard Gordon is really fishing for material there when he sees Mrs. Morgan. Hemingway writes, Her desire for children and security, her lack of sympathy with her husband's aims, her sad attempts to simulate an interest in the marital act that had become actually repugnant to her. It would be a fine chapter. Or so Mr. Gordon was thinking. And the great irony, as we learn in another couple chapters, this description is completely off base when it comes to Harry Morgan's wife. Right. We already know that they have a very loving relationship. And in fact, it's completely dead on in describing Richard Gordon's own wife. And I think that's the greater irony. It's his wife that hates it when he comes home. It's his wife that finds him completely repugnant. That's right. And really, for good reason. He's scum. He's one of the haves in our novel that compares very unfavorably to our presumed have-nots. He's got money, but that's about all he's got at this point. Because quickly we find out his wife is going to leave him. For another man. Who's a little bit more sympathetic to her. But you know what? I think we're going to leave Richard Gordon now, too. And I want to get back to Harry floating on his boat, shot, nearly dead, floating on a boat leaking gas. How does this get resolved? The Coast Guard picks him up and begins to tow the boat back. They ask him what happened, what's going on, are you okay? As he drifts in and out of consciousness, he just mumbles things that they take as nonsense. But if you read what he's saying carefully, it sums up Harry's theory on life. Well, read it to us, please. Well, clearly this is incoherent, but he says, a man ain't got no, hasn't got any, can't really, isn't any way out. And what's Harry telling us? I think that he's saying that if you don't have any money, you have no other choice and there's no way out but to become a crook like he did. A little later on, he also says... One man alone ain't got no bloody chance. And Scott, Hemingway really drives that point home to us by going right from this scene to introducing us quickly, very quickly, to three very rich yachtsmen on their boats that are in the harbor where Harry's boat is being towed in. They're not happy either. In general, no. With one classic exception, he writes of this one man and his family, they're a happy family and all love each other. The father is a man of civic pride and many good works who oppose prohibition, is not bigoted, is generous, sympathetic, understanding, and almost never irritable. The crew of the yacht are well paid, well fed, and have good quarters. They all think highly of the owner and like his wife and daughter. I think Hemingway's trying to rub it in. If I wrote a story about these guys and their family, no one would want to read it. That's a good point. But now, how does our novel end? Unfortunately, Harry's taken to the hospital where the doctors try to perform surgery. His wife and girls are sitting out in the waiting room. 
and Harry dies on the table. And before the novel actually ends, we're left with Marie. And she's contemplating her next moves in life and what she needs to do financially. And then more than that, contemplates what she is really going to miss without Harry in her life and how much she loved him and how wonderful he was. Essentially, she ends the novel by thinking about how much she had. Right. And now she has not. Which is the end of To Have and To Have Not by Ernest Hemingway. Now, of course, Ildi, Scott, we didn't get to every story and we didn't get to every character in our novel. So if there's a character you want to introduce to us or a moment you want to tell us about, now's your opportunity. Scott, do you have something? Yeah, I'd like to read some lines from Mrs. Gordon. Now, remind me, who was Richard Gordon? Richard Gordon was that writer fishing for material who was dead wrong about Harry Morgan's wife. That's right. And like we said before, he was right on if he had been referring to his own wife. And he comes home and she sees lipstick on his face and she's decided this is the last straw we're through. She says, I was so sentimental about you, I'd break anyone's heart for you. My, I was a fool. I broke my own heart too. Everything I believed in and everything I cared about, I left for you because you were so wonderful and you loved me so much that love was all that mattered. Love was the greatest thing, wasn't it? Love was what we had that no one else had or could ever have. And you were a genius and I was your whole life. I was your partner and your little black flower. Slop. Love is just another dirty lie. Love is that dirty, aborting horror that you took me to. Love is my insides all messed up. Love is you making me happy and then going off to sleep with your mouth open while I lie awake all night afraid to say my prayers even because I know I have no right to anymore. Love is all the dirty little tricks you taught me that you probably got out of some book. I'm through with you and I'm through with love. Your kind of pick-nose love, you writer. (laughs) You writer, you. But the bottom line is... She never really had love. She was infatuated with this guy who made her think all these substitutes for real love were wonderful. And in the end, she's an absolute wreck who regrets her entire life with this man. It makes me wonder if Hemingway heard those words thrown at him once or twice, maybe. Yeah. Ildie, do you have anything? Yeah, there's a little comical scene that I found. (laughs) It happens right after the bank robbery. The three Cuban revolutionaries jump into a cab. They take this cab to the dock where they jump into Harry's boat. Well, whatever happens to that cab driver? Yeah, I figured they'd just kill him. Well, they didn't. They did something a little bit funnier to him. They get out of the car, and one of the Cubans says to the driver, Get your hands up. And as the driver stood beside the car... He put a knife inside his belt and, ripping it towards him, cut the belt and slit the pants almost to the knee, and he yanked the trousers down. And as they jump into the boat and as they're pushing off, they describe the man on the dock was the Ford taxi and the fat driver in his underwear, his trousers around his ankles, his hands above his head, and his mouth wide open. (laughs) I actually found that a little bit funny. I wouldn't have if they had killed him. (laughs) What I wanted to read was a moment between Harry and one of the Cuban revolutionaries on the boat before Harry has to kill them all. He's talking to the boy about his politics, and the boy's trying to explain to him why, right now, they're robbing banks and killing people. We just raise money now for the fight, the boy said. To do that, we have to use means that later we would never use. Also, we have to use people we would not employ later. But the end is worth the means. They had to do the same thing in Russia. Stalin was just a brigand for many years before the revolution. Yeah, it's really sad. Just like Harry Morgan, he convinces himself this is something they have to do. They have no choice. 
in reality, there are plenty of choices. That's exactly what I was thinking when I read it, too. When Harry's thinking about this dialogue between him and the Cuban, he thinks they all double-cross each other. They all sell each other out. They get what they deserve. And I'm thinking, that's exactly what he's doing. He's double-crossing. He's killing. He's justifying his means with his end of feeding his wife and family. So I think Hemingway's trying to make the parallel between the two. And actually, at the end of our novel, Harry does get what he deserves. Unfortunately, yes. Maybe not unfortunately, but he certainly did get what he had coming. And that's where we're going to end today's conversation about the novel To Have and To Have Not by Ernest Hemingway. Ildi, Scott, I want to thank you both for coming in and having this conversation with me. You're You're welcome. You're very welcome, Frank. Joining me now for endnotes on today's conversation is our researcher, Ted Schwartz. Hello, Ted. Hi, Frank. Ted, first thing, I understand unlike today's authors and their critics... Ernest Hemingway totally agreed with what the New York Times critic had to say about his book. He certainly did. All right, well, what did the New York Times critic say about To Have and To Have Not? Referring to Hemingway, the reviewer says, whatever he does is of interest because he has unquestionably a very real talent. What has he done with it in To Have and Have Not? Goes on from there, the expertness of the narrative is such that one wishes profoundly it could have been put to better use. There is cumulative power and telling economy of phrase. There is driving action. And there is also pointless brutality, passages of purely sadistic writing. The famous Hemingway dialogue reveals itself as never before in its true nature. It is false to life, cut to a purely mechanized formula. And he ends up ultimately saying, Mr. Hemingway's record as a creative writer would be stronger if it had never been published. So you're telling me Hemingway agreed that this was a waste of his talent and had lousy dialogue? Yes. In fact, this was a bestseller, did extraordinarily well, and I can't find one reviewer who liked it, including Hemingway. Well, Ted, if Hemingway hated it, it begs the question, why did he write it? For money. Money? But this was the famous Ernest Hemingway. He didn't have money? This was the famous Ernest Hemingway living in a fabulous Key West home, paid for by his father-in-law. And by the way, he was cheating on his wife, so this was going to end pretty quickly. He was spending far more than he was earning, living way beyond his means. So yeah, he did do extremely well as a writer, but he was not keeping that money. But Ted, Hemingway's books still sell today. Wasn't he making residuals on his backlist even then? Well, you're talking a different phase of publishing. You didn't have the kinds of things that we now call a backlist, where a book can be in print forever. That wasn't happening with his yet. And then about the time when it might have, we had a paper shortage. So until the late 40s, there was no way he was going to benefit from his backlist. So if I were unlike the New York Times critic and actually liked to have and to have not, I could not have gone into a bookstore and bought some of his earlier works just off a shelf? Probably not. Well, Ted, let me ask you this way. He hated it after it was published. Do we have any idea what he thought about it as he was writing it and as he was putting it together? He couldn't have taken it very seriously. He took two of his short stories, One Trip Across and The Tradesman's Return, then decided to add a third layer to it, which involved the people who lived on the yachts down in Key West, and put the whole thing together allegedly in one day to create the novel. So that is so unlike his other work and so unlike his working habits, I have to assume he just really didn't respect it at all. So as the readers and I read the novel and we thought of it as episodic, it really was a couple of stories cobbled together with a transition? Not a transition, but a third section. So you had three stories not really interrelating, not really connecting, but getting you through the novel. But Ted, 
The New York Times hated it. Ernest Hemingway hated it. But you said it was a bestseller. Remember, the public is buying the new book without knowing anything other than it's Ernest Hemingway. And he was extremely popular at that time. I'm guessing the author's name was above the title on this one. Probably. Well, is that why Hollywood came calling? Because it was a Hemingway? No, Hollywood had been calling for years. Howard Hawks, the director and a longtime friend of Hemingway, used to go fishing with him, wanted to do a Hemingway story as a movie. But Hemingway never wanted to. So Howard Hawks got Hemingway to write a screenplay of a novel he hated? He pushed and pushed. They were on a 10-day fishing trip, and he said, you don't have to go to Hollywood. We can meet just the way we're doing now. You don't even have to write down the story. I'll dictate it. Because all we wanted to do was keep the characters. Couldn't stand the story. Before Hawks got Hemingway working on the treatment, he had to do what it took to get the book out in the first place. He had to tell him that he needed money, and he'd pay him. Then, to kind of push Hemingway, he added... I can make a picture out of your worst story. What's my worst story, asked Hemingway. That blankety-blank bunch of junk called To Have and Have Not. You can't make anything out of that, said Hemingway. Yes, I can. You've got the character of Harry Morgan. I think I can give you the wife. All you have to do is make a story about how they met. Well, all right. How was Hemingway's screenplay then? But he never wrote the screenplay. He wrote a treatment, which was just defining the story, and he figured out how to strengthen the characters and their backstory. Well, that's the treatment. What about the screenplay? That was eventually turned over to William Faulkner and to another professional screenwriter. Now, wait a minute. They gave Hemingway's treatment of his novel to Faulkner, the William Faulkner, to write the screenplay? Faulkner was out in Hollywood at that point writing screenplays. Hawks began teasing Hemingway because he couldn't get him to budge on what he'd do, and he said, okay, I'll get Faulkner to do it. He can write better than you can anyway. And so it ended up with Faulkner being given the assignment. Ted, why do you think Hemingway wouldn't do this screenplay? We've already said he needed the money. Well, he sold the rights to the story, which gave him some decent money. But Faulkner later commented on that, and he said he just felt that Hemingway was one of the writers of the day who felt comfortable in one genre and would not make a transition to any of the others, as so many of them had done. Now, Ted, I've seen the movie To Have and To Have Not with Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. Yes. And it was sort of a not very good World War II movie, which, of course, the novel has nothing to do with. The novel was written for the day, which was 1937. By the time they got to filming the movie, it was 1944. Nobody had liked anything about it except the characters, so they kept the characters and made it a story that was more contemporary. Well, Ted, I guess I've got to ask you, nobody liked the novel, including the author. Nobody liked the screenplay, including the director. Did anybody like the movie? Probably, but I love the review about the fact that Faulkner and Hemingway had worked together to some degree. Do you have that quote? Paraphrasing it a bit, it was that, if you want to look at it this way, here you had two future Nobel Prize winners collaborating to create a really mediocre story. Well, Ted, right here we have two no prize winners, and I hope we created more than just a mediocre story. I want to thank you for coming in and bringing endnotes today on the novel To Have and To Have Not by Ernest Hemingway. You're welcome. I also want to thank our Novel Conversations readers, Ildi and Scott Rich. You've been listening to Novel Conversations. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo. Until next week, I hope you find yourself in a novel conversation. Novel Conversations is a production of the Front Porch People. Listen to more great conversations at thefrontporchpeople.com. Thank you for listening. Mad Magazine. Advertising mascots. B-movie posters. And cartoons. Oh yeah, can't forget cartoons. 
If you get the funky connection that ties these pop culture gems together, you'll dig two designers walk into a bar. See, we're a couple of creatively curious pals living between the bookends of grand museums and dive bars. Hey, you know the place, the sweet spot where highbrow and lowbrow become drinking buddies. So join our barroom chats as we talk influential work and uncover stories of how the familiar became iconic. Think behind the music for the stuff we love. Check out our website at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com. And listen wherever you get your podcasts or visit evergreenpodcasts.com. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.